So we have some new sound equipment at church, and uh, we're super thankful for that. It seemed to work really well yesterday, except the recording. So I'm uh, just having to record the message again. Apologies that this is not the live version, but hopefully uh, it will be essentially the same. I'm going to preach it as if it is uh, live. So we are finishing up a series, the series we've called Loving God Together, And every January at Trinity, we go through the first three values of the value statement, which are all to do with loving God. And uh, we kind of try to flag them up and highlight them as we start the year and just say, look, this is the most important stuff. And this year, we've decided to add the word together uh, to the series title so that we're thinking not just about loving God individually, but loving God corporately. I think one of the issues that we kind of struggle with, in uh, certainly in the West, is the idea that everything is very individual. Everything is very personal. And of course, God does deal with us as personal uh, individuals. He deals with us personally. But that doesn't mean our relationship with him is totally private and secretive, or it shouldn't be. We're part of the local church. We're part of the body of Christ. We need one another. And so over the course of these past few weeks, we've been thinking about how we can help and stimulate and encourage one another in our loving God uh, together. So we've thought about the first couple of values. The first value, uh, pursuing God in the Bible. And we thought about that together in the context of Nehemiah 8, as a group of God's people came together to hear God's word and to respond to it. And that raises questions. How can we be kind of encouraging each other? Uh, With God's word, how can we um, help each other to be responding to God and pursuing God in the Bible? And then second value, responding to God in worship and prayer. And so Andy spoke on that a couple of weeks ago, just before the week of prayer. uh, And uh, that great truth, that great prayer that Jesus taught, our Father in heaven. And that raises again questions. How can we not just have private, personal prayer times but also really encourage one another. How can we be people who are loving God together by praying together and for one another? And then we come to the third value. Uh, Incidentally, Andy uh, focused on prayer, not worship, but we'll pick up that worship idea in the message we're looking at today. So we'll, we'll sort of bring that in as we're focusing on the third value. And the third value is um, reflecting God's character in every area of life. And so we've got God communicating with us through scripture and us communicating with him through prayer and and also worship. And and, and then there's the living life in every area. We're not just talking about Sundays here. We're talking about at home, at work, at school. We're talking about in public and in private. We're talking about with family and away from family. We're talking about literally every area of life, our hobbies, our leisure activities, our time in front of a screen, our time on the internet. How can we be reflecting God's character? And, And also, how can we be encouraging one another? How can we be helping each other in these different aspects of life? Now, before we jump into the passage that we're looking at, Uh, I I, want to raise a question, and I I don't know if many people have this question or not, but some might. Looking at the the value statement of the church, we have loving God values, we have loving one another values, and then we have loving our neighbor values. Why is reflecting God's character in every area of life a loving God value rather than a loving our neighbor value? After all, typically, when we're talking about 
reflecting God's character, living lives that are godly in different and every area of life, we tend to talk about it in terms of the example we're setting. We tend to talk about it in terms of the opportunity to witness, the creating questions in people's minds as they watch our lives and then say, hey, tell me, why do you have hope when no one else has hope? There's something different about you compared to everyone else I've known. Can you tell me the reason why? And we tend to think of this as a value that reflects a sort of an evangelistic or an outreach kind of a motivation, which is absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with that. But here we've put it in the loving God section of our values. Let me give you a 100% made up story to illustrate why and explain why we've put this value right here in the loving God section. I want you to imagine a person, I'm making them up. Okay, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. Mid-twenties, let's say mid-twenties, his name is Steve. You've known him for a few years and he's been single for that time, but recently that changed. Recently, he met a girl, let's call her Debbie, and his whole, you know, his whole world's kind of turned upside down. He just can't stop talking about Debbie, it seems. And so you're excited to kind of see this thing develop. And you notice all the standard evidences are in place. When she writes to him, he smells the letter, he reads the letter, he memorizes the letter. You know, he, he just uh, devours it. When she emails, he's all over it. When she texts, every time the phone beeps, he's grabbing for it in case it's Debbie. At the same time, he's communicating with her. He's uh, on his phone, sometimes for hours on end, talking to Debbie. And everything seems to point to the fact that these two are absolutely made for each other. This is a great relationship. But then gradually, you become uneasy. As you continue to watch Steve from his side, you start to wonder, why is it? That every time there's a single girl around, a single lady, he seems to be paying her incredible attention. Why is he so flirtatious with every single that he meets? In fact, why has he signed up to an online Christian dating website to be introduced to others? It makes no sense. You can look at that and you go, hang on a second. There's a a disconnect between the relationship when they're communicating with each other and then the actions when he is away from that communication. And I suppose at one level we might look at that and we might say, wow, Steve is really setting a bad example. You know, there's younger people watching, there's people who haven't yet had a relationship watching, there's married people watching, and and everyone who's watching is seeing this inconsistency. It's a bad example. It's uh, It's not the way he's supposed to live. And I suppose on the one hand we could be thinking about Hundreds, thousands, billions of people that could be watching the way that Steve is living. But I suspect we're thinking about someone in particular. I think that probably if we're watching this situation develop, we will probably have our hearts and our minds drawn, not to the masses, not to the crowds, but to Debbie. It's Debbie that's the the one who is going to be hurt most by this, right? It's Debbie the one who he's supposed to be devoted and faithful to. And yet when he's not in communication with her, there's an inconsistency in the rest of his life. She is primarily the one we would be concerned about. And then secondarily, everyone else. And so in the same way, uh, I, I use that story to illustrate why we've put this reflecting God's character in every area of life in the loving God values because 
yeah, if, if we don't live a life that's appropriate, if we don't live a life that is consistent with who we claim to be as followers of Jesus, then definitely it's going to have an impact on those around us. It's absolutely going to be unhelpful for those who may be watching. But primarily, it's going to be hurtful to the one who loves us, to the one with whom we have that relationship. And so that's why we're thinking about this, reflecting God's character in every area of life. Now, where do we go for that biblically? We could go to any number of places. Uh, It's interesting in the New Testament, when you read the letters, a lot of the letters seem to have a sort of two-part structure. They begin by describing all that God has done for us, and then they sort of finish by saying, and so therefore, this is the way that you should live in response to that. We could go to Ephesians and see in chapter 4, verse 1, after everything that's gone before, Paul says, walk then in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. And he goes on to talk about living for Jesus in every area of life. We could go to Colossians, where after two chapters, talking all about how wonderful Jesus is and what he's done, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, well, hey, since then we've been raised with Christ. Since all of this stuff is true, Set your hearts and your minds on things above and live in every area of your life consistently with God's goodness to you in Christ. And we're not going to go to Ephesians or Colossians. We're going to turn to Romans, which essentially gives us that same structure. We've got the first part, which in this case is 11 chapters. And then we come to chapter 12. And that's where we're going to be focusing in, Romans chapter 12. And uh, from 12 through to the end of the book, you have the outworking or the implications or the applications of the glorious truth that's come before. Now, just the briefest summary of what's come before. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul says, hey, it doesn't matter whether you are Jewish or not Jewish, religious or not religious, every single person, every last one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all Uh, We all lack God's righteousness. But then he goes on, good news from the end of chapter 3 through to the end of chapter 8. The good news is, hey, look, God has given us his righteousness. That's the best news. Look at what he's done in Jesus. And by giving us Jesus and then giving us the spirit, you come to the end of chapter 8 and you're just celebrating saying, hey, look, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This is amazing. Which raises a question, well, what about Israel? They seem to have been separated from the love of God. Not necessarily. And Paul, through chapters 9, 10, and 11, demonstrates God's promise of his righteousness can be trusted. So we lack God's righteousness. God has given us his righteousness. God proves his promise of righteousness. And then chapter 12 and following, we live out God's righteousness. That's essentially the book of Romans. And so we're here in Romans chapter 12, and we're just going to look at, as far as preaching today, we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is what that, those verses say. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So keep your finger right there in the Bible. Look at those two verses because that's what we're going to be thinking 
about as we're thinking about reflecting God's character in every area of our lives. Notice that Paul says here, brothers. He's launching straight in, talking to uh, the, the believers in Rome. This is not written to an individual called Roman. This is written to a group of believers that meet in Rome, and he calls them brothers. To us, that, that, that sounds kind of weird. What about the sisters? Why not brothers and sisters? But actually, in that culture, the position of the brother, culturally, legally, was a better position than the position of a sister. So actually, what Paul's doing here is he's including everybody, male and female, that doesn't make any difference. He's including everybody and saying, we have the highest position in God's family. What a privilege. And what is he telling them to do? He's appealing to them. He's, he's calling on them. Therefore, in light of what's come before, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's quite an image, isn't it? A living sacrifice. I suppose for us it's not a vivid image. But in the ancient world, whether you were Jewish or pagan, wherever you lived, there would be a temple somewhere nearby to some god or other. And typical uh, practice at any temple would be the sacrifice of animals. And so people understood what a sacrifice was. Even the word here has it built into it the sense of a killing. And Paul's saying, okay, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living killing, if you like. That's kind of bizarre. But why does he put the word living there? Well, because he's not saying, hey, this is the deal now. You've trusted Christ. You need to come to this thing and you need to die, literally. He's not saying that. This is not some sort of weird suicide thing that some religions seem to get into. No, this is a living sacrifice. This is a, a living day by day for Jesus. Not just a dying for Jesus. This is a living for Jesus kind of a call. But it's a living that involves a killing. And the killing is the laying down of my rights, the laying down of my preferences, my living for me. You see, that's the way we've always lived, that I do what I want when I like paying what I've earned so that I can have what I deserve. And we kind of live uh, with this freedom and this independence and this real sense that uh, my pursuit of happiness is the greatest goal that I can have. And Paul says, not anymore. He says, now I want you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And he doesn't just mean in some kind of spiritual, sort of kind of um, good intention kind of way. What he means here is, is literally in every area of life. That's why he says present your bodies. Because your bodies are the tool, the vehicle with which you do everything. Your work, your leisure, your fun, your rest, your relaxation, your, uh, your, your travel your holidaying, your family time, everything that you do, you do with your body. You do it in your body. And Paul's not saying, hey guys, I want you to, you know, first thing in the morning, come to God and, and have a, a vague spiritual sense of devotion to God and then just do what you want. He's saying, no, present your bodies. So first thing in the morning is not a bad idea. When the alarm goes off and you crawl out of bed, before you crawl your way into the bathroom or anywhere else, whatever you do first thing in the morning to the coffee machine or whatever, crawl onto the altar. Crawl onto the altar and say, okay, Lord, here I am. <laughs> here I am. 
week, half awake, can't even remember what day it is, let alone what's coming today, but I'm crawling onto the altar and I want to tell you that I'm here for you. I want to live for you. The life that I live in this body today, I want to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 is saying the same sort of thing. That I've been crucified. My rights have been killed. My, my selfishness is, is not the controlling factor today. I'm crawling onto the altar because I want to live for Jesus. We can do that. And we can be motivated for that because Jesus offered his body as a dying sacrifice. This is not a, a big ask, is it? That, hey, would you guys live for me when Jesus first died for us? And so Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice wherever you go, whatever your circumstance. At the start of each day, at the start of each uh, phase of the day as you go to work as you come home from work as you uh, spend time with family as you spend time alone as you travel uh, as you sit in front of the screen as you uh, work in the garden or in the shed whatever phase of the day you're in climb onto the altar and say here I am Lord I want to present my body as a living sacrifice I want to live for you and what kind of a sacrifice he says it's holy to be a holy and acceptable to God kind of sacrifice. Now this again raises a couple of questions. It's, uh, first of all, you, you don't have in the ancient world, certainly not in, in Judaism, the, the notion of a rubbish sacrifice. You don't go to your flock and say, right, I need to sacrifice a lamb. That one's kind of weak. It's got a gammy leg and it's missing an eye. And when it tries to make a noise, it just coughs and it doesn't honestly look like it's going to make it through the week. So I'm going to cut my losses and I'm going to take that to the temple, offer it to God as a sacrifice and, uh, you know, job done, right? Then everyone's happy. No, that's not the way it worked. They had to look at their flocks and take the very best. The prize lamb, the one that was perfect in every way, the one that, that just honestly would cost them the most. Bring that to the temple and sacrifice that so that in the sacrifice, God was honored and there was a cost to the person bringing it. And so Paul's saying here, hey, when you bring your body and present yourself to God in all aspects of life, in every area of life, you are presenting to God a holy and acceptable offering. That does raise a question for us. It raises an issue because you know as well as I do that I, I'm not very acceptable, nor are you. That every day there's elements of our... I mean, every day we crawl onto the altar, maybe. We say, Lord, here I am for you, and then we fall off it. It's not that we kind of squirm off it. We sometimes take a running leap off of it in order to do things that are selfish. And we fall flat on our faces and we mess up and we, uh, and we just kind of feel so unholy and unacceptable. But here's the thing, we're not on the altar because we are paying for our sin. We're on the altar because he has paid for our sin. So when you slip off the altar or you slide off the altar or you take a running leap off the altar, you come right back to it and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I blew it. Here I am, I want to live for you. 
Another thing that this uh, may raise within us is a, a sort of a dissatisfying sense that this sounds a whole lot like just live a dull life. Just be good. When you go to work, be good. When you go home, be good. When you're in, on the internet, be good. When you're on holiday, be good. When you're traveling alone, be good. And it just sounds a little bit, a little bit weak. I, I can understand that. But I don't think that's what it's saying. The reality is, in every circumstance of our lives, the easy thing to do sometimes can be just be good, just be nice, just be don't don't cause a stir, don't don't push up against anything, don't be different. And so, actually, just being good and just being nice may not be what God is calling us to at all. For us to be a living sacrifice, for us to be ready to kill our selfishness might mean that we go into a workplace where it's expected of us to fudge the numbers on the department reports so that we still get the bonuses that we feel we deserve. And it would be much easier to do the wrong thing there or or to do the right thing by everybody else, to just look nice and to just look good. But to actually say, no, I'm a living sacrifice. I'm living for Jesus and I cannot lie on that report. I'm going to do the right thing, even if it hurts, even if it costs. To go into school and to be with a group of peers that that are on their phones and that are expecting you to be on your phone doing what they're doing with phones and cameras and text messages and saying things and responding to things in a way that you find gross and inappropriate. It would be a whole lot easier to just kind of be nice and go along with the crowd. But to say, no, I'm, I'm a living sacrifice. I'm here presenting my body for Jesus. I'm presenting my phone for Jesus. And I don't want to do what they're doing. That actually takes courage. To be a living sacrifice is not just committing to be nice and to have the easy path. It's saying, no, I'm going to stand up and do what's right, whatever the cost. I'm going to stand up and do what's right, whatever people think. Whatever people say, whatever may happen. I'm presenting myself, my body, as a living sacrifice. And Paul says this, This presentation of your body and everything that you're involved in, in every area of life, this is your spiritual worship. But more than that, as well as crawling onto the altar, he also tells us in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, I try to give us a, a sense of what this means. The, the word conformed means to be pressed into the shape of something, like a, a mold in, into which you pour the, uh, the, the material that you want to have shaped, and you kind of push it into all the little nooks and crannies of that mold, and then uh, once it hardens, the mold can come away, and you have this shaped material. This was probably quite common in the old days in different forms, Maybe today we don't have too much of this in daily life unless we work in industrial plastics or something, industrial engineering. But maybe the place we, we experience this is when we take a plastic mold and we pour in liquid jelly, as we say in this country. Jello, as they say in America. You pour this liquidy stuff, sweet liquid in there, and then it goes into every corner and it takes on the shape of, let's say, a hedgehog. And you put the thing in the fridge and the, uh, the, the thing cools down and the miracle happens. And then you turn it over and you put it on a plate and you take the mold away. And what do you have? You have one of the greatest delights to humanity, a hedgehog-shaped jelly. 
wobbling there on the plate. I mean, it really is absolutely marvellous. But what, what, is, what has that got to do with this? Paul's saying, do not be conformed. Do not be pressed into the shape of this world or this age. He's saying, if you're going to be a living sacrifice for Jesus, if you're going to live your life for him, then you are going to face pressure. And I suppose we could say, well, you know, we're not living in a country where we get arrested or we get beaten for being followers of Jesus. We might, you know, be uh, people might kind of have a laugh at our expense. But come on, I mean, there's lots of tougher places in the world. And that's true. But actually notice that what he's talking about here is thinking. He's talking about the need for a renewal of the mind. He's talking about a need for transformation in our thinking. Why? Because the conforming often happens at the level of our thinking. Isn't it true that we live in a culture where there is an immense pressure upon us to think a certain way? The pressure comes through the media, it comes through our neighbours, it might come through our family, it might come through our teachers or our professors, our lecturers. It comes at us all the time. You've got to think this way politically. You've got to think this way about sexuality. You've got to think about this way about gender. You've got to think this about this uh, moral or ethical issue. You've got to think this about what is, is appropriate. You've got to think this about tolerance and other religions. And we're just constantly bombarded with pressure. And what happens when you stand up and say, I've actually got a different understanding. I've got the more traditional understanding of tolerance or of sexuality or of marriage or of whatever. What do people then say? Do they say, oh, you've got a different view? That's fascinating. We believe in hearing all different views and being tolerant of all different views. So by all means, tell us your different view. No, people don't say that. If you dare to challenge in any of these areas the kind of common sense, political correct kind of thinking, that common sense in quotes, what everybody thinks, right? If you challenge that, people will say to you, either overtly or implicitly, your thinking isn't right. You're not thinking at all. In fact, your thinking is dangerous. We need to stop you thinking what you're thinking. You're a fundamentalist. You're a religious fanatic. You're a bit of a thought terrorist. We're actually living in a time and living in a culture where there is immense pressure on us to think a certain way. And Paul's saying here, if you're going to climb onto the altar and be a living sacrifice for Jesus, it's not just an issue of of action, it's going to be an issue of thought. It's going to be an aspect, it's going to come from how you think about things, and your thinking has to be transformed, because you're in a world that is just pressuring you to take on the shape of this jelly hedgehog, or whatever it is, and the pressure is there, but you need to climb out of that mold in order to climb up onto the altar. You need to climb out of the world's way of thinking or you can never really live for Jesus. And so how do we climb out of that giant rubber mold that is pushing us into a certain shape and climb up onto the altar? How do we get the renewal of our minds? It doesn't say in this passage. But it seems to me that if we want to think differently from this age and if we want to think differently from the world that we're living in, then clearly we need to be informed and we need to have thinking and access to thinking that comes from outside of this age and from outside of this world. 
Where are we going to get this kind of thinking? And the answer clearly is, I think, the Bible. This is God's word from outside of our world. And yet, how easily do we as Christians just let our Bibles sit there as if they are irrelevant to our daily lives? How easily do we neglect our Bibles and then wonder why our decision-making or our living for Jesus seems to be struggling when it comes under pressure? Why, why is it so simple, so easy for us to kind of drift into the world's way of thinking? Or even, and this is the scary thing, why is it that there are so many people in the church who are absolutely unaware of how much their thinking has been shaped by the culture around it's like those moving walkways in an airport and we somehow think that if we uh, just you know stand still we'll, we'll be fine we're not gonna we're not gonna go in a certain direction we're just gonna be fine we'll be neutral in our thinking but the reality is if you stand still on one of those moving walkways you're moving and it's taking you somewhere and for us as christians to have different thinking to the world around us there needs to be a very proactive renewal of the mind going on uh, in order to walk against the tide to go against the movement that is taking us in a direction so quickly so let me encourage us if we're going to be a community of god's people who live as living sacrifices who live constantly climbing back onto the altar and saying here i am again lord i want to live for you if we're going to live for him we need to increasingly think like him and that raises a question how can we encourage one another not just to be living sacrifices for jesus but also to have our minds renewed by god's word by a fellowship with other believers by interaction with those who can stimulate us to think clearly and challenge us when our thinking is skewed. In the second half of verse 2, Paul presents a bit of a challenge here. He says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think what he means there is that as you continually... Have your mind renewed and climb out of that mold and climb onto the altar and live for Jesus for, for the next hour and then you know slip off and climb back on again and you live for Jesus again. And, and as you make decisions in work and at home, in private and in public, with your friends, with your family, when you're on your own, whatever the circumstance, as you continue to choose to do the right thing for Jesus, by testing, you will discover... That God's plan for living is perfect. A lot of us maybe uh, are good at discovering that God's plan for living is perfect by, by messing up and discovering that sin leads to nothing good. Or by messing up and discovering the emptiness of living for ourselves. But here Paul's inviting us to the positive saying, come on, test it. When you're in that situation and you're tempted to lie, tell the truth and see if God knows what he's doing. When you're in that situation and the pressure is on you and it would be much easier to do things the way of those around you. Stand for Jesus. Do the right thing. Be ready to live as a living sacrifice. And over the course of time, your testing will prove to you and you'll have a confidence that God's will is good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. It's pleasing. It's the way to go. We climb out of the mold 
perhaps using the word of God as the ladder by which we can climb to get back onto the altar and to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let me just give us for a couple of minutes here a a taste of the renewal of our minds, just a a moment to sit and reflect on the word of God. I just want to read to you from verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through to the end, because this is a list of instructions, if you like, a list of, of things that Paul communicates, and each one kind of comes across as such a counterpoint to the normal thinking of our age. And so I'm not going to make comments particularly about this. I'm just going to read it. And maybe as I read it, God, by his spirit, might, uh, might just put his finger on something. Some verse that we need to come back to and, and dwell on and allow it to renew our thinking so that we're not thinking the way the world thinks and therefore acting the way the world acts. So Romans 12, starting at verse 9. Feel free to just listen. Let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited, repay no one, evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And obviously we could keep reading Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and on he goes. You see, the word of God is an absolute counterpoint to the culture that we live in. And if we think that we are automatically or or easily going to fall into a Christ-like way of thinking, we need to think again because there is a pressure on us to be conformed to this world's way of thinking. And therefore a pressure on us to be conformed to this world's way of acting. Now, there's one more thing I want us to see in uh, the first two verses of Romans 12, just before we finish. Because if we're simply thinking about crawling out of the mold of you know, the world and climbing the, the, the ladder of God's word and climbing onto the altar to live for Jesus, if we're simply uh, addressing how we think and, and how we live, then the danger is that we think it's all about us. That we think, well, I'm just not very good at that. I'm not very good at learning. I'm not very good at committing. I'm not very good at following through. I just, I'm going to have to try harder. And yeah, Maybe. But maybe not. I want you to notice that at the end of verse 1, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul calls spiritual worship. 
he doesn't call it spiritual duty or spiritual obligation or spiritual effort. He says it's spiritual worship. And what's worship? Worship is a response to God. Remember the second value that Andy uh, preached on? Where we uh, respond to God in worship and prayer. He preached on prayer. I'm saying, hey, worship fits in there. And and the beauty of what that's saying there is that we don't just worship God for a few minutes when we sing a few songs together in a church service. We can be living lives of spiritual worship as every day, every moment, every circumstance, every place that we go, every situation we find ourselves in. As we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we are worshipping him day after day after day, all week long, because that's what worship is. It's responding to him with all of the uh, obedience and all of the climbing out of the mold and climbing up the ladder and climbing onto the altar. All of that stuff is happening as a response, not as a responsibility. It's happening as something that we want to do, not as something that we feel we have to do in the wrong sense. We do feel we have to do it. Why? Because our eyes are not on ourselves. Our eyes are on him. So perhaps the image can be completed in this sense, that we climb out of the mold of this world's thinking, that we're being pressured to think the way the world does, and we climb up the word of God, uh, the ladder that renews our minds and changes our thinking, and we climb onto the altar, crawling onto it to again present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But we do all of that with our eyes looking not at ourselves, but looking to him specifically look at the beginning of verse one he says i appeal to you brothers by the mercies of god another translation puts that in view of god's mercies that's a good way of seeing it that the way we think and the way we act the way we commit to serve and to live for jesus the way we we go about doing what these verses are saying is we do it with our eyes fixed on his mercies the kind of mercies that are described in Romans 1 to 11. The kind of mercies that, that are seen when Jesus goes to the cross. The kind of mercies that we experience as the love of God is poured out into our hearts. And we are reassured that if God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 Nothing therefore can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8 again. With, with all of that in view, God's great plan being worked out through the centuries God's incredible mercy at work in the lives of those who don't deserve it if that is what we're fixing our gaze on and if our hearts are stirred by the mercies of God then our motivation will be there to climb out of the mold to have our minds renewed by God's word and to climb onto the altar and to say Lord here I am here I am it's another Monday here I am it's another day at work here I am it's another day with these children or another day with this husband it's another day on my own here I am Lord as I head home for bedtime and who knows what tensions I'm going to face here I am as I head home to an empty home here I am as I spend time with friends as I spend time with neighbors as I participate in the sport or as I go online here I am Lord I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice And the reason that I can do this, the motivation that I have to live for you, is that you were willing to die for me. It's that you were willing to be a dying sacrifice 
so that I can live. And in light of your mercies, in light of your kindness, in light of your grace, I am here and I want to live for you in this situation. And not just me, but also my brothers and sisters beside me. And so how can we corporately, how can we collectively as a group of believers help one another to climb out of the mold of this world's thinking, to have our minds renewed by God's word and to climb onto the altar so that as living sacrifices we can perform an act of spiritual worship in every circumstance of our lives. Let's look to Jesus. Let's find our motivation in him and in what he's done. And then let's help one another to reflect God's character in every area of life. Amen.